Whether the expression limited atonement is good or not, we must reckon with the fact that unless we believe in the final restoration of all men, we cannot have an unlimited atonement. If we universalize the extent, we limit the efficacy. If some of those for whom atonement was made and redemption wrought perish eternally, then the atonement is not itself efficacious. It is this alternative that the proponents of universal atonement must face. They have a limited atonement and limited in respect of that which impinges upon its essential character. We shall have none of it. The doctrine of limited atonement, which we maintain, is the doctrine which limits the atonement to those who are heirs of eternal life, to the elect. That limitation ensures its efficacy and conserves its essential character as efficient and effective redemption. It is frequently objected that this doctrine is inconsistent with the full and free offer of Christ in the gospel. This is grave misunderstanding and misrepresentation. The truth really is that it is only on the basis of such a doctrine that we can have a free and full offer of Christ to lost men. What is offered to men in the gospel? It is not the possibility of salvation, not simply the opportunity of salvation. What is offered is salvation. To be more specific, it is Christ himself, in all the glory of his person, and in all the perfection of his finished work, who is offered. And he is offered as the one who made expiation for sin and wrought redemption. But he could not be offered in this capacity or character if he had not secured salvation and accomplished redemption. He could not be offered as Savior and as the one who embodies in himself salvation full and free if he had simply made the salvation of all men possible or merely had made provision for the salvation of all. It is the very doctrine that Christ procured and secured redemption that invests the free offer of the gospel with richness and power. It is that doctrine alone that allows for a presentation of Christ that will be worthy of the glory of his accomplishment and of his person. It is because Christ procured and secured redemption that he is an all-sufficient and suitable Savior. It is as such he is offered, and the faith that this offer demands is the faith of self-commitment to him as the one who is the eternal embodiment of the efficacy accruing from obedience completed and redemption secured. It is proper, however, that the inquirer should ask the question, Is there not also more direct evidence provided by the scripture to show the definite or limited extent of the atonement? There are indeed many biblical arguments. We shall content ourselves with setting forth two of these, not because there are only two, but because these are examples of the evidence which the scripture itself provides to show the necessity of this doctrine. Number one. The first is drawn from Romans 8 verses 31 through 39. There is no question but that on two occasions in this passage explicit reference is made to the death of Christ. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Verse 32. And Christ Jesus is the one who died, yea, rather, is raised up. Verse 34. Hence any indication given in this passage respecting extent would be pertinent to the question of the extent of the atonement. In verse 31 Paul asked the question, What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? We are compelled to ask the question, Of whom is Paul speaking? In other words, what is the denotation of the expression for us and against us? The answer is that the denotation cannot be other than that provided by the preceding context, 
namely those spoken of in verses 28 through 30. It would be impossible to universalize the denotation of verse 31 if we are to think biblically, and it would be exegetically monstrous to break the continuity of Paul's thought and extend the reference of verse 31 beyond the scope of those spoken of in verse 30. This means, therefore, that the denotation in view in the words for us and against us in verse 31 is restricted, and restricted in terms of verse 30. When we proceed to verse 32, we find that Paul again uses this expression for us and adds the word all. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Here he is dealing expressly with those on whose behalf the father delivered up the son. And the question is, what is the scope of the expression for us all? It would be absurd to insist that the presence of the word all has the effect of universalizing the scope. The all is not broader than the us. Paul is saying that the action of the Father in view was on behalf of all of us, and the question is simply the scope of the us. The only proper answer to this question is that the us in view in verse 32 is the us in view in verse 31. It would be doing violence to the most elementary rules of interpretation to suppose that at verse 32 Paul had broadened the scope of those to whom he is speaking and included many more than he included in the protestation of verse 31. In fact, Paul is continuing his protestation and saying that not only is God for us, but will also freely give us all things. And the guarantee of this resides in the fact that the Father gave up his Son on our behalf. Lest there should be any doubt as to the restricted denotation of the words for us all in verse 32, it is well to be reminded that the giving up of the Son is correlative with the free bestowal of all good gifts. We may not extend the scope of the sacrifice of the Son beyond the scope of all the other free gifts. Everyone on whose behalf the Father delivered up the Son becomes the beneficiary of all other gifts of grace. To put it briefly, those contemplated in the sacrifice of Christ are also the partakers of the other gifts of saving grace. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? When we proceed to verse 33, the restrictive scope becomes unquestionably patent. For Paul says, Who will bring a charge against the elect of God? God is the one who justifies. Who is he that condemns? The thought moves strictly within the orbit defined by election and justification, and the reference to election and justification harks back to verses 28 through 30, where predestination and justification are shown to be coextensive. At verse 34, Paul again refers to the death of Christ. He does so in a way that is significant for our present interest in two respects. His appeal to the death of Christ is coordinated with the fact that it is God who justifies and he does this for the purpose of vindicating the elect of God against any charge that might be brought against them and to support his challenge, who shall lay a charge against the elect of God? It is the elect and the justified that Paul has in mind here in his appeal to the death of Christ, and there is no reason for going outside the denotation provided by election and justification when we seek to discover the extent of Christ's sacrificial death. The second respect in which his reference here to the death of Christ is significant is that he appeals to the death of Christ in the context of its sequel in the resurrection, the session at the right hand of God, and the intercession on our behalf. Again Paul uses this expression, for us, 
and he uses it now in connection with intercession, who also makes intercession for us. Two observations bear directly upon our question. First, the expression for us, in this case, must be given the restricted denotation which we found already in verse 31. It is impossible to universalize it, not only because of the restrictive scope of the whole context, but also because of the very nature of intercession, as availing and efficacious. Second, because of the way in which the death, resurrection, and intercession of Christ are coordinated in this passage, it would be quite unwarranted to give to the death of Christ a more inclusive reference than is given to his intercession. When Paul says here, it is Christ that died, he of course means that Christ died for us, just as in verse 32 he says that the Father delivered him up for us all. We cannot give wider scope to the for us implied in the clause, it is Christ that died, than we can give to the for us expressly stated in the clause, who also makes intercession for us. Hence we see that we are led into impossible suppositions if we try to universalize the denotation of those referred to in these passages. Finally, we have the most cogent consideration of all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35-39 Paul is here affirming in the most emphatic way, in one of the most rhetorical conclusions of his epistles, the security of those of whom he has been speaking. The guarantee of this security is the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And the love of God here spoken of is undoubtedly the love of God towards those who are embraced in it. Now the inevitable inference is that this love from which it is impossible to be separated and which guarantees the bliss of those who are embraced in it is the same love that must be alluded to earlier in the passage when Paul says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 32. It is surely the same love, called in verse 39, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, that constrained the Father to deliver up his Son. This means that the love implied in verse 32, the love of giving the Son, cannot be given a wider reference than the love which, according to verses 35-39, through 39, ensures the eternal security of those who are its objects. If not all men enjoy this security, how can that which is the source of this security and the guarantee of its possession embrace those who enjoy no such security? We see, therefore, that the security of which Paul here speaks is a security restricted to those who are the objects of the love which was exhibited on Calvary's accursed tree, and therefore the love exhibited on Calvary is itself a distinguishing love and not a love that is indiscriminately universal. It is a love that ensures the eternal security of those who are its objects, and Calvary itself is that which secures for them the justifying righteousness through which eternal life reigns. And this is just saying that the atonement which Calvary accomplished is not itself universal. Number two, the second biblical argument that we may adduce in support of the doctrine of definite atonement is that drawn from the fact that those for whom Christ died have themselves also died in Christ. In the New Testament, the more common way of representing the relation of believers 
to the death of Christ is to say that Christ died for them. But there is also the strand of teaching to the effect that they died in Christ. See Romans 6 verses 3 through 11, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, and Colossians 3, 3. There can be no doubt respecting the proposition that all for whom Christ died also died in Christ. For Paul says explicitly, one died for all, therefore all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 There is denotative equation. The significant feature of this teaching of the Apostle, for our present interest is, however, that all who died in Christ rose again with him. This also Paul states explicitly. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Romans 6, verses 8 and 9. Just as Christ died and rose again, so all who died in him rose again in him. And when we ask the question, what this rising again in Christ involves, Paul leaves us no doubt. It is rising again to newness of life. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of the resurrection. Romans 6 verses 4 and 5 For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all in order that those who live should no longer live to themselves, but to him who died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15 For ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3 3 We have therefore the following sequence of propositions established by the explicit utterances of the Apostle. All for whom Christ died also died in Christ. All who died in Christ rose again with Christ. The rising again with Christ is a rising to newness of life after the likeness of Christ's resurrection. To die with Christ is, therefore, to die to sin and to rise with him to the life of new obedience, to live not to ourselves, but to him who died for us and rose again. The inference is inevitable that those for whom Christ died are those and those only who die to sin and live to righteousness. Now it is a plain fact that not all die to sin and live in newness of life. Hence we cannot say that all men distributively died with Christ. And neither can we say that Christ died for all men, for the simple reason that all for whom Christ died also died in Christ. If we cannot say that Christ died for all men, neither can we say that the atonement is universal. It is the death of Christ for men that specifically constitutes the atonement. The conclusion is apparent. The death of Christ in its specific character as atonement was for those and those only who are in due time the partakers of that new life of which Christ's resurrection is the pledge and pattern. This is another reminder that the death and resurrection of Christ are inseparable. Those for whom Christ died are those for whom he rose again, and his heavenly saving activity is of equal extent with his once-for-all redemptive accomplishments. In concluding our discussion of the extent of the atonement, it may be well to reflect upon one or two passages which have frequently been appealed to as settling the debate in favor of universal atonement. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15 is one of these. 
On two occasions in this text, Paul says that Christ died for all. But that this expression is not to be understood as distributively universal can be showed by the terms of the passage itself when interpreted in the light of Paul's teaching. We have found already that according to Paul's teaching, all for whom Christ died also died in Christ. He states that truth emphatically here. One died for all, therefore all died. But elsewhere he makes perfectly plain that those who died in Christ rise again with him, Romans 6.8. Although this latter truth is not stated in so many words in this passage, it is surely implied in the words, He, Christ, died for all in order that those who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. If we were to suppose that the expression, those who live, is restrictive and does not have the same extent as the all for whom Christ died, this would bring us into conflict with the explicit affirmations of Paul in Romans 6 verses 5 and 8, to the effect that those who have been planted in the likeness of Christ's death will be also in the likeness of his resurrection, and that those who died with him will also live with him. The analogy of Paul's teaching in Romans 6, verses 4 through 8, must be applied to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Hence, those referred to as those who live must have the same extent as those embraced in the preceding clause, he died for all. And since those who live do not embrace the whole human race, neither can the all referred to in the clause, he died for us all, embrace the entire human family. Corroboration is derived from the concluding words of verse 15, but to him who died for them and rose again. Here again the death and resurrection of Christ are conjoined, and the analogy of Paul's teaching in similar context is to the effect that those who are the beneficiaries of Christ's death are also of his resurrection, and therefore of his resurrection life. So when Paul says here, died for them and rose again, the implication is that those for whom he died are those for whom he rose, and those for whom he rose are those who live in newness of life. In terms of Paul's teaching then, and specifically, in terms of the import of this passage, we cannot interpret the for all of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 as distributively universal. So far from lending support to the doctrine of universal atonement, this text does the opposite. Perhaps no text in scripture presents more plausible support to the doctrine of universal atonement than 1 John 2.2. 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The extension of the propitiation to the whole world would appear to allow for no other construction than that the propitiation for sins embraces the sins of the whole world. It must be said that the language John uses here would fit in perfectly with the doctrine of universal atonement if scripture elsewhere demonstrated that to be the biblical doctrine. And it must also be said that this expression of itself would not offer any proof of or support to a doctrine of limited atonement. The question, however, is, does this text prove that the atonement is universal? In other words, is the case such that canons of interpretation are violated if we interpret it in a way that is compatible with the doctrine of limited atonement? Since there are so many biblical reasons for the doctrine of a limited extent of the atonement, we are required to ask this question, and when we seek to answer it, we can find several reasons why John should have said, for the whole world, 
without in the least implying that his intent was to teach what the proponents of universal atonement allege. There is good reason why John should have said, for the whole world, quite apart from the assumption of universal atonement. 1. It was necessary for John to set forth the scope of Jesus' propitiation. It was not limited in its virtue and efficacy to the immediate circle of disciples who had actually seen and heard and handled the Lord in the days of his sojourn upon earth. See 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3. Nor to the circle of believers who came directly under the influence of the apostolic witness. See 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4. The propitiation which Jesus himself is extends in its virtue, efficacy, and intent to all in every nation who through the apostolic witness came to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. See 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 7. Every nation and kindred and people and tongue is in this sense embraced in the propitiation. It was highly necessary that John, like the other writers of the New Testament, and like the Lord himself, should stress the ethnic universalism of the gospel, and therefore of Jesus' propitiation as the central message of that gospel. John needed to say, in order to proclaim this universalism of gospel grace, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Number two. It was necessary for John to emphasize the exclusiveness of Jesus as the propitiation. It is this propitiation that is the one and only specific for the remission of sin. John, in the context, was underscoring the gravity of sin and the necessity of avoiding the snare of complacency with reference to it. But in that connection it was imperative for him to remind believers that there is no other labor for sin than Jesus' propitiation. There is no other sacrifice for sin. The utmost bounds of human need and the utmost bounds of divine grace know no other propitiation. It is for the whole world. Number three. It was necessary for John to remind his readers of the perpetuity of Jesus' propitiation. It is this propitiation that endures as such through all ages. Its efficacy is never diminished. It never loses any of its virtue. And not only is it everlasting in its efficacy, but it is the perpetual propitiatory for the ever-recurring and ever-continuing sins of believers. They do not plead another propitiation for the sins they continue to commit, any more than do they appeal to another advocate with the Father for all the liabilities which their continuing sins entail. Hence the scope, the exclusiveness, and the perpetuity of the propitiation provided sufficient reason for John to say, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And we need not suppose that John was here enunciating a doctrine of propitiation that is distributively universal in its extent. If it is not necessary to find a doctrine of universal atonement in 1 John 2.2, then this text does not establish universal atonement, and the meaning and intent can be harmonized with what we find to be the doctrine required by other biblical considerations. It is worthy of note that John in this text speaks of Jesus as the propitiation, and he is the propitiation for our sins. It is highly probable that this form of statement points to Jesus Christ the righteous, as not only the one who made propitiation once for all by his sacrifice on the cross, but as the one who is the abiding embodiment of the propitiatory virtue accruing from his once for all accomplishment, and also as the one who offers to those who trust in him an ever-availing propitiatory. 
This threefold aspect from which propitiation may be viewed is one of the deepest significance for the consolation of the people of God as they consider what, above all else, is the liability created by their sin, namely, the displeasure of God. Christ is the abiding propitiatory so that they may draw near in full assurance of faith knowing that the propitiation which Christ rendered and the propitiatory which he ever continues to be constitute the guarantee that they will be saved from the wrath which their sins deserve. It is this complex of thought that makes it difficult for us to place even this text in the framework of universal propitiation. There is here, as in so many other instances, a certain joining by which the efficacy that accrues from the atonement is conjoined with the atonement. As we take into account the thought of the preceding verse that Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father, it is necessary to regard the advocacy which Jesus renders and the propitiation that he is as complementary. It is because Jesus made propitiation and is the abiding propitiatory that he is the advocate with the Father. If we give to the propitiation an extent far beyond that of his advocacy, we inject something which is hardly compatible with this complementation. We can readily see, therefore, that although universal terms are sometimes used in connection with the atonement, these terms cannot be appealed to as establishing the doctrine of universal atonement. In some cases, as we have found it, it can be shown that all-inclusive universalism is excluded by the considerations of the immediate context. In other cases, there are adequate reasons why universal terms should be used without the implication of distributively universal extent. Hence, no conclusive support for the doctrine of universal atonement can be derived from universalistic expressions. The question must be determined on the basis of other evidence. This evidence we have tried to present. It is easy for the proponents of universal atonement to make offhand appeal to a few texts, but this method is not worthy of the serious student of Scripture. It is necessary for us to discover what redemption or atonement really means. And when we examine the scripture, we find that the glory of the cross of Christ is bound up with the effectiveness of its accomplishment. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood. He gave himself a ransom that he might deliver us from all iniquity. The atonement is efficacious substitution. Chapter 5. Conclusion There is only one source from which we can derive a proper conception of Christ's atoning work. That source is the Bible. There is only one norm by which our interpretations and formulations are to be tested. That norm is the Bible. The temptation ever lurks near us to prove unfaithful to this one and only criterion. No temptation is more subtle and plausible than the tendency to construe the atonement in terms of our human experience and thus to make our experience the norm. It does not always appear in its undisguised form. But it is the same tendency that underlies the attempt to place upon the work of Christ an interpretation which brings it into closer approximation to human experience and accomplishment, the attempt to accommodate our interpretation and application of our Lord's suffering and obedience unto death to the measure or, at least, to the analogy of our experience. There are two directions in which we can do this. We can heighten the significance of our experience and doing to the measure of our Lord's or we can lower the significance of our Lord's experience and doing to the measure of ours. The bias and the final result are the same. 
we drag down the meaning of Christ's atoning work and we evacuate it of its unique and distinctive glory. This is wickedness of the deepest dye. What human experience can reproduce that which the Lord of glory, the Son of God incarnate, alone endured and accomplished? It is true we bear the punishment of our sins and we may know something of the bitterness We are subject to the wrath of God, and the sting of unremitted guilt can reflect the awful severity of divine displeasure. Our sins have separated us from God, and we can know the dismal emptiness of being without God and without hope in the world. There is still more we can know of the bitterness of sin and death. The lost in perdition will everlastingly bear the unrelieved and unmitigated judgment due to their sins. They will eternally suffer in the exaction of the demands of justice. But there was only one, and there will need not be another, who bore the full weight of the divine judgment upon sin, and bore it so as to end it. The lost will eternally suffer in the satisfaction of justice, but they will never satisfy it. Christ satisfied justice. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.6 He was made sin, and he was made a curse. He bore our iniquities. He bore the unrelieved and unmitigated damnation of sin, and he finished it. This is the spectacle that confronts us in Gethsemane and on Calvary. This is the explanation of Gethsemane, with its bloody sweat and agonizing cry, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26.39 And this is the explanation of the most mysterious utterance that ever ascended from earth to heaven. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Perish the thought that there is a Gethsemane hid in all love, and perish the presumption that dares to speak of our Gethsemanes and Calvaries. It is trifling with the most solemn spectacle in all history, a spectacle unparalleled, unique, unrepeated, and unrepeatable. To approximate this spectacle to the analogy of our human experience is to disclose a state of mind and feeling insensitive to the alphabet of Christianity. Here we are the spectators of a wonder, the praise and glory of which eternity will not exhaust. It is the Lord of glory, the Son of God incarnate, the God-man, drinking the cup given him by the Eternal Father, the cup of woe and of indescribable agony. We almost hesitate to say so, but it must be said, it is God in our nature, forsaken of God. The cry from the accursed tree evinces nothing less than the abandonment that is the wages of sin. And it was abandonment endured vicariously because he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. There is no analogy. He himself bore our sins, and of the people there was none with him. There is no reproduction or parallel in the experience of archangels or of the greatest of saints. The faintest parallel would crush the holiest of men and the mightiest of the angelic host. Who will say that the vicarious endurance of the unrelieved and unmitigated judgment of God upon sin impairs the initiative and character of eternal love? It is the spectacle of Gethsemane and Calvary, thus interpreted, that opens to us the folds of unspeakable love. The Father did not spare his own Son. He spared nothing that the dictates of unrelenting rectitude demanded. And it is the undercurrent of the Son's acquiescence that we hear when he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Luke 22.42 But why? It was in order that eternal and invincible love might find the full realization of its urge and purpose in redemption by price and by power. 
Of Calvary, the Spirit is eternal love, and the basis, eternal justice. It is the same love manifested in the mystery of Gethsemane's agony and of Calvary's accursed tree that wraps eternal security around the people of God. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Romans 8.35 For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8:38 and 39 That is the security which a perfect atonement secures, and it is the perfection of the atonement that secures it. Part 2. Redemption Applied Chapter 1. The Order of Application The provision which God has made in His providence for the sustenance and comfort of man and beast is not sparing or niggardly. He has made the earth to teem with good things to satisfy the needs of man and beast and to meet their varied tastes and appetites. Psalm 104 is the inspired lyric of praise and admiration. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good. Verses 27 and 28 Wine that maketh glad the heart of man, oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Verse 15 And the psalmist exclaims, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches. Verse 24 The provision which God has made for the salvation of men is even more strikingly manifold. For this provision has in view the manifoldness of man's need and exhibits the overflowing abundance of God's goodness, wisdom, grace, and love. This superabundance appears in the eternal counsel of God respecting salvation. It appears in the historic accomplishment of redemption by the work of Christ once for all. And it appears in the application of redemption continuously and progressively till it reaches its consummation in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. When we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes. To mention some, we have calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. These are all distinct and not one of these can be defined in terms of the other. Each has its own distinct meaning, function, and purpose in the action and grace of God. God is not the author of confusion and therefore he is the author of order. There are good and conclusive reasons for thinking that the various actions of the application of redemption, some of which have been mentioned, take place in a certain order, and that order has been established by divine appointment, wisdom, and grace. It is quite apparent to everyone that it would be impossible to start off with glorification, for glorification is at the far end of the process as its completion and consummation, and it is scarcely less apparent that regeneration would have to precede sanctification. A man must surely be born again before he can be progressively sanctified. Regeneration is the inception of being made holy, and sanctification is the continuance. Hence it requires no more than the most elementary knowledge of these various terms to see that we cannot turn them around and mix them up in any way we please. But we may also look at a few passages of Scripture 
to show that there is clearly implied an order or arrangement in the various steps of the application of redemption. If we take first of all such well-known texts as John 3, verses 3 and 5, our Lord told Nicodemus that except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God, and except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Obviously, seeing and entering into the kingdom of God belong to the application of redemption, and our Lord indicates that apart from the new birth, regeneration, there cannot be this seeing or entering into the kingdom of God. It follows that regeneration is prior, and it would plainly be impossible to reverse the order and say that a man is regenerated by seeing or entering into the kingdom of God. No, a man enters the kingdom of God by regeneration. As Jesus says again, John 3, 6, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We may also examine a closely related text, 1 John 3, 9. Every man who is born of God does not do sin, because his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. John is dealing here, no doubt, with deliverance from the reigning power of sin. Such deliverance is part of the application of redemption. But the text demonstrates that the reason why a person is delivered from the reigning power of sin is that he is born of God. And the reason he continues in this freedom from the ruling and directing power of sin is that the seed of God abides in him. Here we have clearly the order of causation and explanation. The new birth causes and explains the state of freedom from the domination of sin and is therefore prior to such freedom. The regenerated person does not commit the sin which is unto death, 1 John 5.16, and the reason is that he is born of God, and God's seed is always in him, to keep him from that grievous and irreparable sin. Still further, let us look at John 1.12. We may focus our attention on two subjects with which this text deals, namely, the reception of Christ and the bestowment of authority to become the sons of God. We may properly call them faith and adoption. The text says distinctly that, as many as received him, to them gave he authority to become children of God. The bestowment of this authority, which we may for our present purposes equate with adoption, presupposes the reception of Christ, namely, faith in his name. This is to the effect of saying that adoption presupposes faith, and therefore faith is prior to adoption. So we should have to follow the order, faith and adoption. Finally, we may glance at one passage of Paul, Ephesians 1.13, in whom ye also, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The sealing with the Holy Spirit is that which follows upon the hearing of the word of truth and believing. Hearing and believing are therefore prior in order and cannot be made to follow the sealing of the Spirit. These few texts have been appealed to simply for the purpose of showing that there is order which must be maintained and cannot be reversed without violating the plain import of these texts. These texts prove the fact of order and show that it is not empty logic to affirm divine order in the application of redemption. There is a divine logic in this matter, and the order which we insist upon should be nothing more or less than what the scriptures disclose to be the divine arrangement. These texts, however, have not brought us very far in discovering what the order of arrangement is in connection with a good many of the actions which are comprised in the application of redemption. They have established a few things, indeed, but only a few. 
When we give a fuller enumeration of the several steps or aspects, calling, regeneration, conversion, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification, we can see that several questions remain undetermined. Which is prior, calling or justification? Is faith prior to justification or vice versa? Does regeneration come before calling? There is one passage of scripture which affords us a great deal of light on this question. It is Romans 8.30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Here we have three acts of the application of redemption, calling, justification, and glorification. They appear in this text in that order. And the question arises, is this order intended to be the order of application and occurrence? Or is the order in the text simply one of convenience, so that Paul could just as well have adopted another order? One thing must be said by way of preface. It is that even if the order had been different, justification first and calling second, the main thought of the passage, would not be disturbed. The main thought is the invariable conjunction and sequence of these divine acts and their indissoluble connection with God's eternal purpose of foreknowledge and predestination. For here we have a chain of unbreakable links beginning with foreknowledge and ending with glorification. But there are overwhelming reasons for thinking that the order Paul follows in verse 30, calling, justification, glorification, is the order of sequence according to the divine arrangement. These reasons are not far to seek. There are so many intimations of order in this passage as a whole that we cannot but conclude that order of logical sequence is intended throughout. Number 1. In verse 28, there is the intimation of order in the expression called according to purpose. This means that purpose provides the pattern or plan according to which calling takes place. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. 
There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.